I want you to know that we've been reading through the New Testament together for the last month, working our way through this devotional guide. So it's, it's been a really helpful process. And this morning we were into Matthew chapter 14. So it's been a great activity for me anyway. What you find is occasionally when you are reading through the New Testament, especially when you're in the stories of Jesus, you come into something that's a little wacky. So we're there this morning. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about Crazy Town. I met someone after 9 o'clock service this morning, and they were brand new. They introduced themselves. I said, hey, they, I said was it a little wacky this morning? She said, yeah, it was kind of wacky. So just forewarned is forearmed. But this is awesome stuff. If you need a title, a way to think about what we're going to be talking about today, you know, the Bible describes this incredible life that we're invited into. One author calls it a divine life that we can have here and now. And you wonder when you read about the joy and the power of God, you wonder why we don't have more of it. And of course, there are a lot of circumstances why we don't have more of it, but one of the reasons that we don't have more of it, we often overlook, we miss. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. We're going to be talking about what may be the missing piece for us. And it is, may I say, an incredible encounter. This incident, some of us struggle to believe, actually happened. Some of us believe it happened and still don't understand it. Either way, we're in crazy town. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. And I'm going to ask the expert, Ken Christopher, if he'll read this morning for us, because this is a wacky one. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Ken? Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Thank you, Ken. You may be seated. Okay, we're going to do four things this morning to just kind of get our minds around this. And I'm going to ask you to work with me, especially in the first part. 
Some of you have seen those um, study Bibles that, that, you know, they'll give you all these notes about what's happening in the passage. So we're first of all going to walk through this verse by verse, and I'm going to give you like study Bible notes of what's going on here with some of this. And then secondly, we're going to back up a little bit and take a kind of reader's view or a devotional view. If we just go into this passage, what happens? And there are two things that immediately leap out at us, and we're going to deal with those two things. Then I want to take a break. We're going to pause. We're going to do a parenthesis, and I'm going to give you a, an edism. I'm going to give you a weird sort of metaphor, word picture, I don't know, for using modern vernacular, what we might call the meta-narrative the big picture of the New Testament, of, of reality as it is. We're going to go that big. And then, at the end, we're going to ask, so what? You know, what does this mean? It won't be like, here are the four things that you need to do this week, or the three things that you need to do this week, but there are going to be three profound implications for our lives and how we think and uh, how we look at ourselves and our, our world. So, let's dive in. I'll try to do this part quickly, but stay with me, work with me on this verse-by-verse analysis. Let me walk through and give you the study Bible view of this. Starts in uh, verse 22 with what can only be described as a shocking account. It reads, Then a demon-oppressed man was blind and mute. He was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Well, first of all, this incident has caused some confusion for biblical readers over the century because of how similar it is to another incident recorded in Matthew 9. I want you to look at these two accounts. Here they are side by side. Look at the similarities. I'll bet you that some of you, if you're reading through this, you read this early this week and you thought, wait, didn't I just read this? Really similar. Uh, now, you need to know when you're reading the Bible and you run into something that makes you go, wait a minute, what? Why is that in there? Or what's going on here? You need to know that many other people have also asked that question. So you're not crazy and you're not a heretic. So what's the deal here? Some scholars have suggested that Matthew actually uses the same incident in two different places for different literary reasons. Others have suggested that perhaps a later editor added this account back into the text here. In other words, some later Matthew student and editor took a familiar story, one which Matthew had already included, and he placed it here probably to highlight the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus. Or perhaps the two accounts represent just two different memories of the same day from two different witnesses, and both got included, either by Matthew or, or by this later editor that we're talking about. Lots of different theories. However, many Bible commentarians would suggest that those kinds of explanations are just too strained. In other words... There's no reason to believe that there wouldn't have been two similar incidences in Jesus' ministry. Why couldn't two very similar things have occurred? They have in my life. They probably have in yours. And I believe that's the best explanation. So I believe Matthew 12 records a second incident of Jesus releasing a person from the physical torture of a debilitating evil influence. Verse 23 then says this, And all of the people were amazed, and he uses a really strong word in the Greek there, and said, can this be the Son of God? Now, the term Son of God was a popular name for the coming Messiah, the Jewish hero who would one day come and rescue them. In the original context, this would have been asked by these guys, you should know, with both wonder and confusion. The wonder, of course, is that they'd waited on the Messiah for centuries. Could this be him? The confusing thing for them is that they got more and less from Jesus than what they expected from the Messiah. 
Here's what I mean. According to parts of the tradition, it was believed that Messiah would be able to perform miracles, but nothing like what they were seeing in the ministry of Jesus. This is the more part. But they also believed that the Messiah would be a great military leader. Jesus was not. This was the less part. So while they were amazed, they would also have been a bit confused by what they saw. So then we see this event provokes criticism from the religious leaders, and this is a consistent theme in Jesus' ministry. This is often what happened to him. You see this in verse 24. So when I read this, I immediately wondered what in the world was up with the term Beelzebul. In fact, in the New Testament, it's only used here and in that Matthew 9 passage that we just had side by side. The etymology of this word or where it came from isn't fully known. It could have come, many people think it came from the Hebrew word Baal-Zubub, which meant Lord of the Flies. And that term itself, Baal-Zubub, was probably used in mockery of Baal-Zubul, which means Prince of Baal, who was a, a deity that was famous in the Old Testament, an alternate god. But another interesting option was offered by one scholar that has become pretty convincing in some circles. He suggested that Beelzebul might have been just a straightforward Aramaic translation of the Greek word oikodespotes. Aramaic was the language of the streets in Jesus' day, and he would have done a lot of teaching in Aramaic. And oikodespotes is a, the Greek word that meant head of household. That's perhaps why they mentioned that Beelzebub was the head of the household of evil in this passage. Wherever it came from, the important thing is that by the time of the New Testament, this name had become a name sometimes associated with Satan. So obviously, we learn from this passage and passages like this that there were lots of opinions about who Jesus was during this time in his ministry. As we said, some in the crowds were beginning to wonder if he was the Messiah. Also, according to this same account, Mark's account of this, some within his own circle of students were wondering if Jesus himself was a little bit crazy. Plus, we found out this morning, if you read this morning's reading from Matthew chapter 14, that Herod, the local Roman vassal, he believed that Jesus was the ghost of John the Baptist. That's just a sampling. There are lots of rumors about him that were swirling, and, and some of them were pretty fantastic. And Jesus rarely responded to any of that. He rarely says much about this at all. Very late in his ministry, he looked at the disciples for this reason. He said, who do you think I am? But he doesn't respond to all of these rumors and concerns about who he is, except he does in this incident. He answers the shocking charge that the Pharisees level at him. Look at verses 25 and 26. Essentially, he says this, what you're saying makes no sense. Why would Satan drive out the sons of Satan? A kingdom divided against itself will be overwhelmed. So if I'm using the power of the head of demons against demons, then Satan is divided against himself. He pushes further in the next verse. He says, besides, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And as a result, their actions are going to judge you. So this verse seems to suggest that Jesus had already begun to train his students and recognizing and casting out demons. Pause for dramatic effect. This seems to suggest that he's already begun to train his students in recognizing and casting out demons. And we're going to get weirder. He asks the Pharisees the obvious question. If I'm casting out demons by the power of the head of demons, then so also are these students of mine, who, by the way, are your sons and daughters and neighbors. This isn't just an effective argument. It puts the Pharisees in a really bad light. Clever job, Jesus. 
So then in verse 28, Jesus finishes his point by drawing a very legitimate conclusion. It's not the only conclusion he could draw, but it's a, it's a very legitimate one based on the argument he's just made. He says, so it may just be that I've done what I've done by the Spirit of God, and if so, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's pause to catch our breath. So what we've got is amazing encounter followed by withering criticism which Jesus, in turn, answers resoundingly. Then in verse 29, Jesus offers a parable that gives his explanation of what has actually happened in this encounter. If you're going to steal from a wealthy, well-guarded person, Jesus reasons, you have to first neutralize that person and their guard, then you can steal from them. Obviously, he's saying that that's what he's done here. Far from using the power of Satan, Jesus has in fact neutralized Satan so that he could release this needy man from Satan's control. Like I said, crazy town. So let's press on, look at verse 30. For some readers, this verse seems a little bit out of place. It it may seem so to you when you read it. It sounds a little like a warning to people who are on the fence about Jesus. But in this incident, the Pharisees were absolutely not on the fence about Jesus. They clearly were against him. And so, according to Think Him Some, they wouldn't have needed a warning like this. It it would have been lost on them. In fact, some scholars have suggested that Matthew has placed this saying of Jesus here in this dialogue where it didn't naturally happen or originally happen, possibly as a warning to people like us, later readers. That this may not have been originally part of this encounter, but, but Matthew, according to this theory, is preaching to us here. He's saying, hey, if you're struggling to understand or believe this whole picture, then just know the consequences of not believing this stuff. The important thing is that the thrust of the saying is pretty clear. In our relationship with Jesus, there can be no neutrality. Of course, Matthew could have added this in later as a warning to people like us, but again, I don't see any reason to believe that Jesus wouldn't have said this in the original context. There must have been fence-sitters and undecideds who were listening in, either among the Pharisees or among Jesus' own students, and Jesus would have known that. Either way, it's a little intimidating. (laughs) Evidently, Jesus is looking for us to be all in. The passage ends with this weird teaching about blasphemy in verses 31 and 32. The word blaspheme, by the way, is a transliteration of the Greek word blasphemia. They didn't translate the word, they just brought the word from Greek into English. And the word blasphemia means harmful, abusive speech against someone's reputation. Harmful or abusive speech against someone's reputation or reviling evil speech. Of course, blasphemy includes the the attitude behind the speech as well. But in the Greek, it's interesting, there's a serious emphasis with this word on the actual speaking. In other words, the emphasis is on the, the outworking of the heart, not just how we feel, but we're manifesting that. Perhaps you could guess But this teaching has been open to a vast amount of interpretations, more than we have time to discuss, but I'll I'll give you what I believe to be the best interpretation in a minute when we get to the devotional reading of this. Right now, let's just reiterate what Jesus said. He said that we may blaspheme against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but we will not be forgiven if we blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Say what? It's hard to understand what any of that means. Now, whatever this means... We have to deal with it because clearly it's important. First of all, because Jesus begins this statement with the phrase, therefore I tell you, which is one of the things Jesus said when he wanted to underline the significance of something. The second reason this is highlighted in our minds and our thinkings is because the Bible consistently makes a point about the vastness of God's mercy. 
You get the impression that God can and will forgive anything by anyone. But here, we're told by Jesus that there's this one thing that God will not forgive. Okay, so let's look just now as readers. Let's look devotionally. Sometimes when we read the Bible, our response, if we're honest, is something like, wow, that was awesome. Probably more often. Our response is something like, wow, that was completely boring. At times, our response is something like, wait, what? Is that for real? And, and sometimes our response is, what in the world does that mean? And I think just reading Matthew 12, we get one of each of those last two. Wait, is that for real? And wait, what does that mean? Let's, let's look at them. First of all, for most of us, the opening encounter is the kind of thing that makes us wonder, is that for real? Verse 22 again. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, as if we're supposed to jump in with all of this, was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. If we take this seriously, and we should, there are at least three things about this that are mind-blowing. Number one, there is a demon-oppressed man. <laughs> number two, there's the fact that the oppression seems to be the cause of muteness and blindness. And number three, then Jesus blows away the demon. So is this for real? I want to make four comments about the believability of this. Not, not even about what it means yet, but about the believability of it. Number one, there is no reason from the text to disbelieve anything about this account. Now, sometimes when you listen to critics of the Bible or you see a YouTube thing or you watch Discovery Channel special in the Bible, you get the sense that there's all kinds of things in the Bible itself that prove that we shouldn't really believe many of the incidences in the account. Well, there's nothing here suggesting that Matthew wrote this as anything other than a recounting of an actual happening. In fact, all of the principal people involved here, even Jesus' opponents, completely accept the supernatural elements of the encounter. Second thing you should know, all the parties involved in the incident, this goes along with what I just said, all the, all the people in this incident, they respond to these circumstances exactly the way you would expect them to if it, if it really happened as recorded. For instance, the disciples are amazed, and who wouldn't be? But also, in Mark's version, he seems to give that hint that some of the disciples thought that Jesus was a little off his rocker, and wouldn't some of us think that? The Pharisees are profoundly critical. They wonder what they're even dealing with. They can't figure this out. They're clearly struggling for an explanation. All of this is exactly what we would expect if it really happened, right? Third, the only reason to disbelieve this account, I'm not saying this is unfair. Let's be honest. The only reason to disbelieve this account is because you go to this text with the assumption that these kinds of things cannot and do not happen in the real world. Now, that's fair, and you might be right, but let's be honest. That's your assumption. That's your belief. You may be thinking those crazy Christians with their crazy supernatural beliefs, but if you're honest, you have to see that you answer our belief with a belief of your own, for which you have no proof. But you say, what about modern medicine? To which I respond, what about modern medicine? 
The Bible doesn't claim that this is contrary to modern medicine. I want to underscore that. The Bible doesn't claim that this is contrary to modern medicine. It claims that this supersedes modern medicine. This is not an everyday natural occurrence. With that, the Bible completely agrees. The Bible willingly testifies that this is amazing, way out of the ordinary, supernatural occurrence that can't be explained. Now, this kind of story may not be true. It may be a kind of mythology that has arisen around Jesus. But if it's true, let me remind those of us who are Christ followers, everything changes. If this is true, everything changes. More about that in a minute. Secondly, second thing that jumps out at us devotionally, I'd say, is just as a reader, is this whole unforgivability of blasphemy that's discussed here. And what in the world does that mean? Let me give you what I believe to be the best explanation of this. First of all, this does not, this isn't suggesting that somehow the Son of Man, which is another term for Jesus, is, is less important than the Holy Spirit. And it's not suggesting that the Son of Man refers to Jesus before his resurrection and is therefore blasphemable, while the Spirit would be a reference to the post-resurrection work of God and therefore is not blasphemable. Again, it doesn't mean that. It's not that complicated. The key, I think, is recognizing that the Pharisees have attributed the work that Jesus does here to Satan. I repeat, the great works of Jesus, which are in fact representations of the kingdom of God in its purest form, the religious leaders have attributed that work to Satan. They acknowledge that it's real. They don't doubt it. They believe it. They just believe it's not God. And they've believed this persistently and with full knowledge. That's what they're doing. In fact, if that Matthew 9 account is a separate incident, they've done this twice with the same kind of language about the same kind of incident. They do it repeatedly. They attribute the miraculous works of Jesus not as not true, but as spiritual in origin from Satan. Look. Many people have rejected Jesus and later have seen a different view of things and they realize that Jesus was who he said he was and they've repented and this is forgivable. But the studied, persistent, willful decision to reject the work of God, to scorn and blaspheme God's clear manifestation of himself, that is not forgivable. Now some of you may be in a place where you just can't accept the whole story, all of this business. You just can't get your mind around all that supernatural stuff, for instance. I pray you one day will be convinced I pray that God will win your heart, and I know that you'll be accepted and forgiven if that happens. But if you see the power of God actually on display in front of you, and you don't doubt it, you know that something profound has happened, but you ridicule and scorn and slander that work or attribute that work to some other spiritual influence, Jesus is saying, that's not forgivable. Okay, here's what we can't miss in this exchange. If you miss everything else about what happened here with Jesus, don't miss this. Jesus said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let me give you a word picture, and I'll try to do this quickly. Think about us, which we are. Think about us as we live in a three-dimensional world. You know, we're not just two-dimensional stick figures. We can go this way, and we can go this way, and we can go this way. We're in a three-dimensional world, and physicists will tell us it's actually more accurate and more helpful to think of ourselves in a four-dimensional world. We can move in three dimensions, and we also move across time. 
So we're, we're sort of in time and space, four dimensions. I want you to imagine, sorry, umbrella of mercy, this is Ed going all Star Trek, but I want you to imagine that there is a fifth dimension. And that fifth dimension is the spirit. And in the spiritual realm, God exists in his full reality and he, he rules and he reigns. And there is, is where his power and his glory are fully manifest with the New Testament, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us that God created us to live in five dimensions. But somewhere along the way, in the spiritual dimension, there was a rebellion. And the spiritual dimension is populated. And in that spiritual dimension, there were those who rebelled against God, led by Satan. And that rebellion has leached into our world and caused a rebellion in our world. And because of that rebellion, we were cut off from the fifth dimension. We can't see it. We can't experience the spiritual dimension in all of its reality. All we see is a glimmer, hints of it, by what the Bible calls faith. We're, we are cut off from it, and now we live this sort of mundane, plain life in four dimensions, which in, in our experience, is, is most of the time we think that's all that there is, but we're wrong. And we saw, we saw how violently we were wrong in the life and ministry of Jesus when the kingdom of God broke into our world. And when it did, weird stuff happened. The, the spiritual dimension came alive in power in the ministry of Jesus in our world. And when it did, people got well. And evil influences, the rebellion, was put to rest in people's hearts and lives. And they were set free. So... That means we live in a, a war zone. We don't live in a nice American suburb. We live in a battle zone. Part of the reality of our world, part of what's going on around within and behind our world is a battle between the forces of God, that's the power of the kingdom, and the force of Satan. I told you we were going to crazy town. Now, for, for those of you who struggle to believe this, and you're thinking, I can't get my mind around all that spirit stuff, demons and supernatural battle and blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get your struggle. Of course, you might be right to question it. Maybe Christians who buy this are a little out of their minds, but Jesus clearly bought it. And crazy town stuff happened around him constantly. Stuff that's hard to explain by any other narrative. And if you're wrong... If you're wrong about this being real, then I want you to think of what you're missing in your picture of the world. It's like you're going through your life looking at stick figures instead of a 4D television portrayal. You're not seeing the whole image. Let's wrap this up. I'm going to give you three things that this means for us. Implications more than applications. Number one, this whole series of stories that Matthew tells, he's clearly communicating. Hell is involved in our world, in our lives, in our lives, in our lives. Hell is involved, and so is God. In everything that happens to us, hell is involved, and so is God. And they work with very different purposes. 
Look, there are many influences pressing against your thoughts and decisions. Our circumstances, our feelings, our health, our history, our peers, our culture, our own reason. Those things exercise influence over us, and that's all true. But those influences, we recognize those influences. We constantly think about those influences. We're accustomed to thinking in those terms, but hell is also involved. And we rarely calculate that influence, and because we don't, we miss the picture. Because hell is involved, we need to understand and pray against and work against and have others pray for us against the influence of hell in our lives. Plus, we need to understand and pray for and work for and have others pray for the power of the kingdom of God in our lives in favor of that. Hell is always involved and so is God. Secondly, sometimes hell is the primary cause you can't read this passage and not acknowledge that. Sometimes we have bronchitis because we shook too many hands at church and people bring their stinking germs here. But sometimes we have bronchitis because hell is oppressing us. I know how weird that is, but I really believe that. I think this makes that clear. Often cancer is the result of the human body breaking down in a way that may be inherited from our parents. But sometimes Satan afflicts us with cancer. His purpose is to kill and destroy. Jesus' purpose is to give life. Often, mental illness is a combination of body chemistry and circumstances. Sometimes it's just circumstances. Sometimes it's almost exclusively body chemistry. But sometimes, mental illness is an attack from hell. And if the spiritual reality is not part of our thinking, then in those cases, when hell is the primary mover, we will never get better. And even if hell is not the primary mover, we need to not be moving in the direction of hell's purposes. Because remember, hell is always involved. Third ramification, Jesus is the key. To what? To everything. <laughs> to everything. But he's the key in two very specific ways. Number one, he unleashes the full power of the kingdom of God on earth and in our lives. He does that. And number two, he must be received and trusted in order to access that power. Let me end this morning with a story. I was telling the nine o'clock group, I went to seminary in the 1840s. And seminary is the place where people like me go when they want to try to learn how to study the Bible and do ministry and uh, become a pastor or something like this. So I went to a seminary outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and then I took a church in the Boston area. It was like a little storefront church. It was a small little church in the city. And Diane and I then, not long after that, moved into that neighborhood. And early in our ministry, it was probably our second year, it might have been our third year there, we had a young couple who came to our church named Larry and Kathy. And they'd been coming for several weeks. We didn't know their story at the time. We would later learn that Larry had made his living for a number of years selling drugs. And Kathy had made her living for a number of years on the streets. So they brought a lot of suitcases with them when they came. We met in a church building, and it was a beautiful old building. It had a very large sanctuary. The sanctuary swallowed our group. So what we did was we didn't meet in the sanctuary. We actually went into the sanctuary and unscrewed some pews in the sanctuary and took it into an overflow room and just set the pews up in the room. And then I sat up in front of this little room full of people and would talk on Sunday mornings. We'd hit a couple of guitars and sing some songs. And then I would talk on Sunday mornings. 
one particular Sunday, Larry and Kathy were there, and I was speaking. You guys, sometimes this happens to me. Sometimes I really sense God's presence. I know he's always here, but sometimes I sense his presence powerfully because of you or because of what he's saying or because something that Jordan and the team did or something happens. And I know that God is speaking. And this was one of those Sundays. I felt like God was speaking. So I was even more animated then than I am now because it was the 1850s at this point and I was young. And come to the end and I know God is there and I say, let's pray, which I sometimes do here on Sunday morning. And I go to pray and I thought, wait, what in the world? Because there was a rumbling. And I realized the floor was shaking. And I looked up and I look in the back and Kathy is shaking violently in the pew, so violently that the pew is shaking the floor in the entire room. And by the way, it had everyone's attention. So I pause for a second. I'm clueless. I don't know what to do. But seriously, you guys, at this point in my life, my theology began to change. I didn't know how I felt about this stuff, but I knew what the book said. So I looked at our group and I said, you know, I think God is here. So let's just wait for a minute. And the shaking gets worse and Kathy begins to moan. So I look at two of the men in our congregation whom I trusted. And I said, Lee and Israel, do me a favor. I don't know what to do, but I know what the book says. Go over and place your hands on Kathy and just pray over her and say, in the name of Jesus, be still. Lee looked at me like I had four heads. He thought, I'm not going to get anywhere near that person. (laughs) And I looked at him like, you better, because I want to maintain order. Besides, I don't want to get anywhere near her, so it's on you. (laughs) So he goes over. He and Israel go over. They put their hands on Kathy. They start praying, and then Lee gets bold, and he says at one point, in the name of Jesus, be still. And Kathy went so still, she slumped down into the floor underneath the pew. It's like she was out. Well, now I really got everybody's attention, so I say to the group, you know, God's doing something here. Let's close in prayer. And for those of you who'd like to, you can be dismissed. Continue to pray, and uh, some of us are going to stick around and pray for Kathy. So, thank you, Lord, and I pray some, I'm sure, awesome, super spiritual prayer. In Jesus' name, amen, and half the room runs. (laughs) And several people come up front, and I ask Larry and others if they'll bring Kathy down. They sit her on the front row, and I go over, and a few of us gather around Kathy, and we start praying for her, and it's like, you know, nothing, there's no fireworks, nothing weird. And then I say, "Uh, Kathy, you doing okay? After we prayed for a little while, she's quiet, and then she says, they're after me, Ed. And I said, who? And she said, they've been here my whole life. And then she started screaming. Now, there were two big wooden doors between where we were and the outside, but I'll guarantee you anybody walking by on the sidewalk outside would have thought something untoward is happening inside that building. We continued to pray over Kathy, and we prayed in, in Jesus' name that... This force would be neutralized, that the enemy would not have his way with Kathy and with her life. And something happened. Kathy stopped screaming. She seemed to 
composed herself. We prayed a little while longer, and then I looked at Kathy, and I said, Kathy, how are you feeling? She said, I feel fantastic. Tell me more. She told me more. Here's what I want you to know. Here's the moral of the story. Kathy's life completely changed. From that day forward, it completely changed. She looked different. And as far as Diana and I know, she's still walking with Christ today. Hell is involved. Sometimes hell is the primary mover. Jesus is the key. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know how you have stirred or moved in any of us. For some of us, this is unthinkably weird. Others of us, Lord, we may think we got this and we may be the most fooled. Wherever, stir our hearts, speak to us, wake us up, open the eyes of our heart to see what we're really involved with. Call us to something deeper and something wider. My Lord, it's a big world out there, God, and we only see the smallest glimmer of it. Call us into deeper waters. Open us. Thank you so much for being here. Wish you a blessed week.